and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So, the long wait is over. Sue Gray's report has been published. Lurid details of drinking in Downing Street, new photos of the Prime Minister standing by a table full of empty bottles, and the conclusion, in Gray's words, that the senior leadership at the centre, both political and official, must bear responsibility for this culture. So, what have we learnt about Gray's findings about that culture and how Number 10 operated during the pandemic? The Prime Minister has apologised, again. Is that enough? What does Boris Johnson need to do to show that he's really learnt from this experience? And as this stage of the rather torturous saga comes to a close, was it even right to ask a sitting civil servant to lead such a significant investigation? And if not, then who should have done it? Joining me after a day of shuttling between various broadcast studios or an IFG's duo who have followed every twist of this story, Alex Thomas and Jill Rutter. Hello both. Hiya. Hi, Hannah. And Alex, I think you're still somewhere in a, in a studio, aren't you? So there may be some noises off from you. Yes, I'm in Media City in Salford, uh, uh, excitingly. So enjoying it there, but apologies for any background. And I'm really delighted that we're joined by an award-winning journalist whose scoops have led the way in the reporting of Partygate, and that's Paul Brand, UK editor at ITV News and presenter of ITV Tonight. Hi, Paul. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Now, I want to start with you, Paul, actually, because you got hold of some of these photos before Sue Gray's report landed. What was your reaction when you first saw them? Well, we were pretty gobsmacked by the photos that we got of the the Lee Kane leaving party, which is which were the most recent photographs that we got hold of, because these were the first photographs really of Boris Johnson attending um, what we knew was one of the illegal events that the police had deemed this event to have been illegal because at least one person at that event had been fined, and for the first time in sort of visual terms, we could see Boris Johnson raising a glass, having a toast, making a speech. In front of him were a, an array of different alcoholic drinks to choose from on the table. And, you know, this was very obviously a party. And given what you already knew, when, when the Grey Report came out, did anything in it surprise you? No, I think actually there weren't any real surprises in the Sue Grey Report, except for one, which I'll come to in a moment. But for me, what Sue Gray really did was it pulled together all the accusations that have been made about parties over the past six months or so by by the likes of ITV News, but also the Mirror newspaper and others too. Um, and it really gave credibility to all of the stories actually that have been broken about Partygate. There is there is there isn't a story out there actually that isn't verified, as far as I'm aware, in Sue Gray's report. The one thing that was a surprise um, that we hadn't anticipated was kind of the cultural conclusions that she drew about number 10, um, not just the parting, but the attitude towards cleaning staff and security staff. And I think that was the real sting in the tail of Sue Gray's report, was it painted a picture of an institution that didn't just have disregard for the rules, but had disregard for more junior members of staff or lower paid members of staff who were raising concerns and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. And I think that is a real image problem for Boris Johnson, um, because it just creates that sense that that number 10 thinks it's above everyone else, um, quite frankly. And whether or not that's a fair conclusion is for others to draw. But but I think that is the danger for him. And yeah, so it added that extra layer, didn't it? That it's, it wasn't just the rules, uh, the lockdown rules didn't apply in number 10, but also this layer about, well, the more junior people who maybe tried to challenge this behaviour when seniors didn't, 
those were also people, you know, the rules um, d- didn't apply in terms of seniority as well. Yeah, it's that sense of them being dismissive, you know, dismissive of the rules and dismissive of, of the minions who dare to question their treatment of the rules. And, and that's a real dangerous look, I think, for a government, um, especially one which prides itself on this promise of levelling up the country and talking to those people who who feel that they've been left behind and sometimes perhaps ignored in the past. Um, and I think, you know, when, when you're giving the impression that you're... You're rude and and aggressive towards the cleaning staff, for example, in Number Ten. I'm not sure how that fits with with a government which is supposed to be reaching out to the country and saying we're here for for all of you and we're gonna we're gonna pull you up by your bootstraps and make sure that you're you're listened to. That's that's, that's really interesting. And Alex, I, I was on a, a BBC program yesterday with Ed Vasey, uh, the Conservative peer, and and he sort of said. His line was that you know Boris Johnson didn't need to resign, and his, the reason he gave, which interested me, was that the uh, Gray report hadn't really sort of reached a serious judgment against Boris Johnson. Um, but I, it was my understanding that that wasn't actually what Sue Gray had been asked to do. Um, she'd been asked to lay out the facts. Is that right? Yes, I mean, uh, I think I think she uh, was asked to you know reach conclusions about. Um, what had happened in Downing Street, Number Ten, uh, uh, and the Cabinet Office, and elsewhere in government, but this this wasn't set up as a uh, sort of judge and jury style um, report into uh, the conduct of the Prime Minister uh, directly. Um, uh, I think that that, that probably explains, uh, as well as the sort of natural civil service cautious language that that Sue Gray uses in in the report, some of the um, punches that might be pulled about leadership. I mean, it, it talks, both this report and the uh, interim update report um, from earlier in the year talked um, about uh, culture and talked about leadership, but didn't then get into the specifics of, you know, what leaders, who, when, what should uh, happen as a re- result of that, which obviously leaves the space then for the Prime Minister to take, quote unquote, full responsibility, but for that to, um, for the consequences of what that responsibility um, uh, means to, to, be, um, to be left open. Joe, what stood out for you from the report? Well, I've been following it less closely than Paul, so I thought the gruesome details of just the extent of the party, we've already had snippets before, but to see page after page laid out. I thought uh, one of the things I thought was most interesting about the famous Bring Your Own Bottle party, partly the number of people they invited, but the sort of concerns that they were expressing, the knowledge that they were doing this straight after one of those, you know, sabre-rattling Downing Street press conferences at which the rest of us were all being told to behave. Uh, The fact that the only intervention there seemed to come from Lee Kane about the possible comms risks. Well, I can see there are comms risks, but you want to go up a level and say, and why are there comms risks? Is it perhaps because this is something that you're telling the rest of the country they shouldn't be doing? I thought was was all quite interesting. Um, I tend to think the Prime Minister's got away a bit too lightly with his ability to represent most of his activity just as what any good manager would have done. He could have put that sort of explicit exemption into the rules that he's wanted. But ultimately, you come back to the point that um, that Number 10 have known for ages these parties are going on. We saw that in the famous Allegra Stratton video that certainly, even if the Prime Minister didn't know, a lot of people around him knew, and yet they went on denying both to Parliament but also 
to the press that uh, guidance had you know not been followed sometimes very difficult how you can make that stand up and like Alex I thought it was a shame that Sue Gray took refuge in the passive when saying that uh, that these events should not have been allowed much better if she'd actually said who we might have looked to to not have these events and therefore who we should hold to account for that but people could put two and two together so I think it represents both a failure of political leadership as she said leading to the door of the prime minister but also a massive failure of civil service leadership both inside number 10 and in the cabinet office that's interesting and the question I was sort of left with was Boris Johnson sort of implied that you know he may have been present briefly at some of these gatherings but then he 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 went away and he wasn't aware of of, of what went on afterwards Alex and Joe I mean you've both worked at the heart of government could you have partied until 3 a.m. without the knowledge and implicit permission of the Prime Minister? No, no, it's it's the Prime Minister's house. I mean, it's worth noting that for some of these, the particularly sort of um, riotous parties, uh, the Prime Minister wasn't in residence. So to that extent, wouldn't have known. But it's it's the Prime Minister's house, whether it's in the garden or, or in the building. Um, uh, Prime Minister, you know, Previously, I uh, don't know about this uh, uh, this administration, but previously, absolutely would have given uh, permission. And there were some emails that seemed to be floating around. It didn't link back directly to the prime minister, but sort of seeking permission to use the garden, to sort of book the garden or um, or, or, or rooms in Downing Street to, to do that. But um, it does go back. I mean, it's the point that Paul made about the custodians, as they're called, the uh, security guards and support staff um, uh, as, as as well. They you know they have a role in ensuring kind of smooth administration of the. Um, uh, of, of the house, as people call it. And so, I mean, really just to agree with Paul that the new thing in, in a report that felt you know, important, but a little bit almost sort of slightly flat, because I think we knew most of what happened before. It was that point about um, uh, about how uh, relationships with the custodians uh, seem to be during these parties, because that was completely sort of, uh, that, would, uh, that would be inconceivable um, in, in the Downing Street in the Cabinet Office that, that, that I knew. And Jill, I mean, you say you think this is a massive failure of of civil service leadership. What is it exactly that you think um, civil servants ought to have been doing in these circumstances that that they were not doing? I think the civil service is responsible for advising the prime minister. And in these circumstances, the prime minister might have said, I'm going to go and make a leaving speech at blank's leaving do. Um, civil service say, well, Prime Minister, look at the rules. You think it's really within the rules. You might have decided and satisfied yourself that you would do. But then at the end of this, if you're the person there, you would have the Prime Minister leave and you would say, okay, everybody, Prime Minister's been, you've been thanked now, now it's back to work or home. Um, if the Prime Minister was saying, should we have a big get-together in the par- in the garden to thank all the staff? You should be saying, no, Prime Minister, that would be very ill-advised. You shouldn't do it. The Prime Minister is not going to send out invitations to his own parties. Prime Ministers don't do that. And if the most senior official in number 10 thought these things were ill-advised and the Prime Minister wasn't taking his advice and was doing things anyway, you would then go to the Cabinet Secretary. Um, Private secretaries have to do that quite often with ministers who are... You know, flirting with impropriety. You go to the sort of most senior official around who's a bit more distance from the minister you're working for than you are, and you say, Look, 
I honestly can't get him to take my advice on this. Will you come in? And what you need is a substantial enough uh, figure in the cabinet office to come in and say, Prime Minister, this is a very bad idea. Do not do it. Now, people say this is a government that doesn't really like taking civil service advice, but it's one of the really important functions. What you get from all all the reports in Sue Gray's thing is not a single example of a senior official coming in. I think there was one number 10 director who's... uh, who's raised an objections to one of the parties, but you get absolutely no sense that any of the senior officials were either advising the Prime Minister not to do these things. And then there are huge questions about their role in the lines that Number 10 subsequently took when Paul, Daily Mirror and other colleagues revealed what actually had been going on. I think that's a real problem. I'd be interested in Paul's take on that. But that 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 is a the uh, sort of uh, authenticity and truthfulness of the answers that were given needs some real scrutiny. I think. Paul, do you have a ref- reflection on that? Yeah, I think what Boris Johnson tried to do uh, following the Seagray report was carve out a bit of a get out clause for himself, which has been been building all the way along. Which is this sense that. He attended events, yes, but at the time that he was attending them, they were not rule-breaking and they only kind of evolved and morphed into these raucous events after he'd left the room. But this comes back to what um, the rest of you were saying earlier about Downing Street is, okay, a big building by most people's standards in terms of <laughs> how big most people's houses are. Yeah, but ish, ish. <laughs> ish, exactly. But nevertheless, yeah, most people's it's, offices, it's small though, Paul. Absolutely. It's it's not some sort of like cavernous place. It's, it's, it's a relatively medium-sized run of terraces, basically. And the Prime Minister, if these parties are as raucous as Sugre says, would absolutely have heard them, I believe, from his flat upstairs, even if he hadn't attended. And the fact that they went on through over such a long period of time, I think makes it implausible that he wasn't aware that some of them at least were were ending up getting a a little bit out of control or a lot out of control. Um, But, you know, he's sticking to this this point that that with the Lee Kane party, for example, the departure of his uh, director of communications, he went, he he made a speech, he says that's just part of being a good boss. And then he went up to the flat, had no idea what happened uh, uh, subsequently. I think as well, it raises really interesting questions for the Metropolitan Police. And we're not getting any answers to these questions, I'm afraid, because the Metropolitan Police just won't engage on any of the details of their investigation, which is a real challenge. But, you know, if you put the birthday uh, party photograph in Sue Gray's report next to the Lee Kane leaving party photograph, it's really hard to understand how they came to the conclusion that one was rule breaking and the other wasn't, because the birthday party actually looks far more tame than the leaving party that Boris Johnson's pictured at. Um, so, you know, there do seem to be some inconsistencies in the way that the Met have applied their standards, although we should say that events took place at different times when there are different regulations and maybe, you know, maybe they decided that the red box being in the photo of Lee Kane's birthday um, leaving party did imply that it was some sort of, you know, work event and that the Prime Minister was carrying out his duties as, as, as the sort of boss of number 10. But the whole thing is quite baffling, quite frankly. Well, I have to say the leaving dues that happened at the IFG uh, during lockdown tended to be online. And, you know, that can also be done. (laughs) We're talking about leaving parties here. Well, some people were departing this world, uh, sadly, during the pandemic. A lot of people were and and they didn't get 
a goodbye. So I don't really know that the argument that the Prime Minister really, really had to attend a leaving party would have been absolutely awful as a manager not to be there, really chimes with those who never got to say goodbye to people they loved because they were sticking to the rules. Sorry, Alex or Jill, did you yeah. want to come on? I was, I was only going to come in on the point that Paul makes about um, Downing Street and uh, uh, the audio quality. Um, it was remembering that Gavin Barwell tells a story of uh, when Theresa May was having some torturous negotiation with the DUP and uh, the sounds of come on Eileen could uh, be heard sort of drifting into her office. So, you know, there's a, there's, there's a bit of proof that, uh, that the soundproofing in, uh, in Downing Street uh, isn't, isn't resistant to, uh, uh, to loud music. And Paul, I, I wanted just to return to the photos that were handed to you. What do you think it says about the mood now at the heart of, of this administration that people have leaked this sort of thing? Well, look, without getting into sourcing, I think it's quite clear that, that the, the whole thing's become very toxic at the heart of government. And and actually, the one thing that that Boris Johnson has done, which has helped with all of this, is to clear out <laughs> a large part of his administration. We now have fresh people in Downing Street, and and you know his, his director of communications, Gitto Harry, wasn't around at the time of these parties, and is really trying to do a clean up operation on behalf of the Prime Minister. Um, but certainly, I think you know I, I remember discussing this at the time of the 2019 general election when Boris Johnson won won a large landslide election victory and all credit to to the Prime Minister for doing that. But there was kind of a sense of hubris that came with it. And a lot of the figures in, that, that went into Downing Street with him were kind of quite macho, uh, quite sort of, I mean, I think some people would say quite arrogant people um, who inevitably were going to clash with one another, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think that's sort of coming coming true now that, that, that the Prime Minister has fallen out with so many of his advisors, for example, Dominic Cummings, um, that this has become a sort of toxic legacy for him, that he has so many people on the outside now willing to brief against him, um, that I think this is going to besiege the rest of his, or beleaguer the rest of his premiership, actually. Hannah, I just think there's another interesting thing about the approach number 10 takes and has taken from the start to put the sort of wrongdoings behind us. But their handling strategy, you know, may end up being, in the Prime Minister's words, vindicated that he gets away with it. But at every turn, they seem to only be thinking about what gets them through the next question, the next hour. And in a sense, one of the problems, I think, of the culture the Prime Minister's created is by his sort of obfuscations, he's forced lots of other people into, into if you like, into his sort of, you know, conspiracy, uh, become complicit in misleading, into sort of digging themselves into ever deeper holes. You know, if the Prime Minister, when those first questions come up, if this is what he honestly believed said, no, we didn't have parties at number 10. On a few occasions, we had leaving drinks for departed colleagues, at which I said a few words. Um, That was it, nothing to see here. In the way in which the Department for Education, the Treasury have fessed up on their parties, that, that could have possibly put a stop to it. Part of the problem, though, is number 10 doesn't even seem to think that when they deny things, what happens when the evidence comes out that their denial is not right? Uh, They know they've got a lot of hacked off staff. They know absolutely everybody carries a camera with them these days. 
they probably knew that they were practicing for these press conferences with the video. And it always struck me that what was the Prime Minister was really, really annoyed about with the Allegra Stratton video was not that the staff had had a party. It was that there was concrete evidence that there had been a party in number 10, rather irrefutable evidence there and then uh, that couldn't be dressed up as a work event. And we knew that in December 2021. So I think they just never, they'll just do whatever it takes to get through the next day and don't seem to think about actually, you know, where does this all go? And basically, as a result of all of that, They've wasted half a million pounds of met time and effort for what's been a really unsatisfactory outcome. They've wasted huge amounts of you know time, effort, political energy inside number 10. And they're dragging lots of other people down with them, which I think is not a great look for a government and not a great way of governing. But Jill, I, I wonder whether that's just part of Boris Johnson's leadership Style and I, and I say this not necessarily as a criticism, but I think what Boris Johnson has excelled at throughout his career is getting himself out of scrapes, um, and a lot of that has involved flat denials. Um, and even when those denials have been proven not to be true, Boris Johnson has survived because he has this kind of magnetic charisma for many people in the country, and that's why he's been such an electoral asset throughout his career for the Conservative Party. And I think he took the same attitude to Partygate, where he just thought, look, I've got through everything else in my career when there's been controversy, I'm just going to take the same approach with this. And I actually got the sense, for example, yesterday at the press conference where Boris Johnson addressed us on Partygate, that this scandal has shocked him more than others because it, it brought him closer to the brink than he's ever been. And I just wonder whether he's going to be able to pull himself back now and to and to slightly reform himself, if that's possible, um, because I think he's seen that that he's not actually invincible um, through this scandal, um, and that's that has been a learning for him, um, and maybe that might change the character of his administration to some degree, which we'll have to see. I hope Paul is right, because uh, not to go too deep into it, but one of the things you know, we at the IFG have talked about as, uh, uh, with others is the um, lack of sort of constraints and lack of accountability uh, on a prime minister or anyone in the British uh, system who is, uh, you know, unburdened by uh, the uh, uh, need to tell the truth. Um, and so if Paul is right and there is just a sort of whisper of consequences uh, uh, flashing through um, Boris Johnson's mind. And I think that's a healthy thing for our uh, system overall, because um, uh, people will realise that they, they, bluntly, they can't get away with it. And I guess it depends in, in part on whether the new people who he's brought into number 10 are, are going to help him create that, that, that new approach. I mean, Paul, we had a, a day of contrition yesterday from, from the Prime Minister. Do you think he will get his wish and be able to actually move on now? Well, I mean, there's a trickle of letters going in at the moment of no confidence letters, or certainly at least public statements from MPs saying that they no longer have confidence in the Prime Minister, but it is only a trickle. It's certainly not a flood. So at this point, it doesn't look as though we're facing a, a vote of no confidence, but that could build, particularly over the weekend, often is the case that MPs go back to their constituencies, have a chat to their local members or to their constituents and kind of get a flavour of what the public mood is. So let's see what happens, um, although we're just heading into a recess period, of course. So we'll have to wait until uh, sort of 10 days or so before they return from that. Um, but 
I do think probably for now he is safe. And then the next big test is those two by-elections in June, which are fascinating because they're a red wall and a blue wall by-election to opposite ends of the country, opposite sort of electoral challenges for the Conservative Party. One one faces Labour, one faces Lib Dem. If he lost both of those by-elections, I think we would start to to face real panic within the Conservative Party that they had a, a big issue on their hands. And at that point, perhaps they'd look to, to remove their leader. But they, the window is kind of narrowing now. They don't. I mean, amazingly, because so much has happened in the past two years, I don't think we quite realise just how close we are to the next general election um, coming around the corner. So if they're going to move, I would say really they, they, they have to remove Boris Johnson this year. Otherwise, probably they've missed their chance. Alex, we've looked at the AFG at, at um, Johnson's plans to restructure number 10. Do you think those are, are, are going to work? Those are going to help him turn a page? So it, it's definitely true that the personnel changes you know, are real. And as Paul was saying earlier, um, uh, seem to have led to something of of a change. You know, if you, if you install a new permanent secretary in number 10, get rid of the principal private secretary, change the director of communications, you know, that does make a difference. And people, you know, people and personalities matter in the kind of crucible of, um, of, of government in, in number 10. So that is real. I'm a little bit less convinced about some of the structural changes, you know, great plays been made of a new office for the prime minister um, and, uh, you know, separating things out of cabinet office and, and, and so on. That seems to me to be pretty uh, limited. Um, there's a suggestion, it's all been kind of briefed out rather than properly announced, but there's a suggestion there'll be two boards in the Cabinet Office, um, uh, both of which are ultimately overseen by the Cabinet Secretary, but then one led by the uh, Permanent Secretary number 10 that looks at the kind of Prime Minister facing or runs the Prime Minister facing bits of the centre, um, and the other um, uh, uh, led by the Chief Operating Officer, Alex Chisholm, that uh, deals with the kind of what are called the functions, the sort of the back office stuff, the finance and the HR and all those bits that the Cabinet Office uh, does. I mean, all well and good, but I think that comes with some constitutional risks that the um, the broker function of the Cabinet Office is undermined, uh, and also some kind of government reform risks, which is that the plans for government reform get marginalised and we get sort of uh, drawn into the fairly sort of superficial 91,000 cuts or uh, get back into the office rather than some of the deeper issues of government reform uh, that, that really demand a bit of senior ministerial and senior official time. So you know, it's it's a change, but it's it, it feels a bit sort of incremental, and I, and I, and I doubt will. Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it won't change Johnson's style if, if, if uh, and the style of the government. If that changes, it will be for sort of you know, psychological uh, prime ministerial reflections, as Paul was alluding to earlier, rather than any kind of structural change because the, the, the personality of the prime minister is so strong. I always thought Sue Gray had given the prime minister a bit of a lifeline in her interim update when she said that you know, one of the issues was confused accountabilities. And the Prime Minister used that again yesterday. And indeed, Sue Gray said she was pleased he was undertaking some of the changes to deal with those. But whatever the merits or demerits of the new structures that we are seeing, they actually look to me as though they confuse accountabilities in many ways more, because we have this you know, strange Steve Barclay position as Chief of Staff and as a Cabinet Office Minister sitting in number 10, the sort of political operation reporting to him, uh, the new Permanent Secretary in number 10, Samantha Jones, doing it on an interim basis, and the officials in number 10 reporting. But where exactly, if the problem is an out-of-control press office, 
which does seem to be a bit in party gate or you know who's reporting to whom here i mean it, do- it doesn't look to me as though the accountability lines are any clearer than they weren't but since everybody is taking refuge in the fact that this has now been sorted out I do think it'd be very helpful if somebody could take a bit of time to explain maybe Simon Case when he finally turns up at PACAC explain how these new structures would have prevented those failures of judgment and leadership that Sue Gray's report exposed. And Paul of course this is something that Simon Case is now going to have to oversee what what do you make of his position how he's been left? Well, his position is quite compromised, I think, because obviously he's implicated in Partygate himself. Um, and the challenge for him now is how he finds a way through all of this. And I think there are a lot of people inside the civil service who feel very bruised by Partygate. And obviously he, he has to manage those those people who feel quite betrayed, certainly in the more junior ranks, that they were fined and they sort of carried the can for Partygate, really. Whilst the Prime Minister, although he received one fine, um, did manage to escape fines for for other parties um, that, that other people were stung for. Um, so I think there's a real there's a real operation to be to be put in place here in terms of rebuilding morale inside Number Ten actually after after Partygate and across the broader cabinet office and civil service because they need to pick themselves up now and remember what this government is is attempting to achieve and and really regain their focus. And the, the challenge with that, of course, is that we're now facing another set of crises on the horizon, most notably the cost of living crisis, which I think, again, is going to rock the government and sort of, I think, challenge their ability to get a grip on on, on what their raison d'etre really is here. Or what, it, what is it that they're trying to achieve as a government? And, and if the cost of living crisis bleeds on until the next election, which almost certainly will, I, I wonder whether we might get to, to that point of the election and, and not actually really be able to definitively say what it was that Boris Johnson's government achieved other than dealing with crisis after crisis. It's a, a depressing vision. Thank you, Paul. Um, one area that I think is still not settled also within this, before we even get to, to the wider problems that the government has to has to address before the next election, is this is this question which Westminster has been very focused on of whether the Prime Minister misled Parliament. Alex, can you just briefly remind us what happens next with that? Yes, so there's um, uh, uh, yet another investigation um, uh, after the Prime Minister failed to um, see it off. uh, uh, He had a rebellion on his backbenches a few weeks ago. Uh, There will now be an investigation by what's called the Privileges Committee, um, which you know all about, Hannah, but um, uh, I will attempt to uh, uh, explain is the uh, sort of committee of a relatively small number of, I think it's it's seven seven or five uh, MPs, Seven, good. Um, uh, who um, uh, who are one of the guardians of the sort of you know some of the rules around the House of Commons, and so they've got the job now that the police investigation and the Sue Gray report are over, of looking into precisely what Boris Johnson said and whether he misled the House of Commons or knowingly misled the House of Commons, which um, under the ministerial code is one of the cardinal sins and uh, is pretty much the only thing in the in the ministerial code. It says absolutely if a minister is guilty of knowingly misleading the House of Commons, they must must resign. So as well as the by-elections that Paul mentioned and the other sort of political events and um, cost of living and policy uh, uh, challenges the government has to face, the next kind of moment uh, in this uh, rolling uh, scandal is is a Privileges Committee report, which probably won't get going that quickly. There's suggestions it might not report until September or later in the year. So this one's got a bit longer to run yet. And Jill, meanwhile, Keir Starmer's uh, got his own uh, uh 
issues to deal with. He said he'll resign if he's fined by the police. Uh, yes. Hypothetically, uh, would that put more pressure on the Prime Minister or or if he isn't fined? I mean, where would all this leave us? Well, the Prime Minister, I think, is very much taking uh, taking refuge in the fact that he was only fined for the birthday party. And I think most people looking at the birthday party, when we saw that fine come through, we assumed that the Prime Minister would get a lot of fines because it looked to most people, and I think after the photographs that Paul and others showed, still looked to most people as though that was the most innocuous of the events that the Prime Minister attended. Um, but clearly he's managed to find a way out of those subsequent ones. I actually think he will probably just, uh, if Keir Starmer ends up sacrificing his and Angela Rayner's career after this, uh, Prime Minister might be slightly worried about who the next Labour leader is, whether they're more of a challenge to him or not. But I actually just think that he would probably find that really quite funny. I'll just tell you guys one really interesting thing that's just come into me is that the Prime Minister's official spokesman has issued a personal apology for not telling the truth to journalists about parties in Downing Street, which gets back to our point that we were talking about later about whether the character of this administration is genuinely about to reform uh, or not. I mean, that is fascinating. I don't, I can't remember another time when the Prime Minister's official spokesman, who who's the person that we deal with daily at lobby briefings, I can never remember them apologising before for misleading us as journalists. Um, so on the one hand, you know, wow, an apology, you know, that suggests turning over a fresh page. But on the other hand, it creates a real challenge, I think, for the government, because as journalists, typically the, the political aides will give you a bit of spin and they might kind of, you know, twist, twist the facts a little bit to their advantage. But the spokesman, the civil servant, is supposed to be far more impartial and, and to not lie to you as a journalist or not mislead you as a journalist. It's, so it's actually... Uh, Having having done the job as an official spokesperson at a time when advisors were briefing things that certainly I couldn't endorse, it is a massively horrendous position to be Mm. put in because you absolutely know, as the civil service paid official spokesperson, that you 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 mustn't mislead journalists. I mean, you know. totally open and things like that, well, well, uh, you may not go completely there and lay everything out and say there are another 10 things you should have asked me and if you ask me those, can I tell you all this? But it, I, 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 it was the most painful period of my career was working for uh, a chancellor whose advisors were spinning like little tops and then the press would know that there were tensions between us and the new regime and come back and put to us as the official Treasury press office, we hear you're going to do X, Y, and Z. And it's the most awkward position in the world because you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely know you mustn't uh, mustn't mislead. So where do you think that that leaves the Prime Minister's spokesman then? If, if he's had to apologise for not telling the truth, I mean, how does he continue in a job where journalists have to be able to trust him? I think I think it's actually in some senses up to all of you in the lobby. Do you now say that's a fair cop? You've acknowledged that. Um, you know, another strike and you're out, but uh, but we're watching you. Or do you basically just push back the message saying we can no longer deal with somebody who over quite a long period of time has systematically misled us? 
Mm. Which shows how, shows how corrosive all this stuff is. It's you know, once it's, it's parties, it's sort of you know, there's there's a triviality about it, but it cuts to so many of the issues of integrity and honesty and reliability and accountability in in, in our system. It's sort of, it's so it's sort of profound, isn't it? Yeah, but it also, Alex, doesn't it, goes back to you know the cabinet secretary. Um, this you know the. <laughs> The code for government communications says, you know, reminds everybody that the starting point is the civil service code, integrity, honesty, and things like that. Does the cabinet secretary think this person can continue in that role? You know, briefly saying, we t- Paul touched to, uh, uh, earlier, and you did, Hannah, about the position of the cabinet secretary. And it is, um, you know, th- there will be more to say on this. This is you know, this is primarily about the prime minister, but it was a really, you know, it was a grim day for the civil service. And reading the detail of the report there, and the cabinet secretary, assuming he does uh, remain in office, absolutely has a, uh, a responsibility now to lead the civil service out of this, to show that he's taking action, whether it's around, you know, individuals who are disciplined, uh, the messages that he puts out to the broader civil service, to show that he. You know that he gets it. Uh, also, I, I would argue to sort of slightly increase his public profile a little bit. Use some select committee hearings to to really set out um, how he's going to um, take the civil service uh, through and uh, out of this. Uh, and that starts with an acknowledgement of of what's gone wrong, uh, and then a plan for uh, a plan for the future. So the cabinet secretary needs to follow the example of the uh, official uh, spokesman. That's what you're saying. And I hope the official spokesman's apology is as a result of intervention by you know the, those in the civil service, including the cabinet secretary, who remind uh, civil servants about integrity and, and honesty. I, th- I think I slightly disagree with Alex. I think this is as much about the civil service as it is about the prime minister. It's too easy to shuffle it off and say, "Well, we're all led astray by you know." Just look at this prime minister. We're all led astray. The civil service uh, people who are designed to be permanent civil servants, able to work for any government, and they have to, even in the most difficult of circumstances, hang on to their integrity. And this was a test for senior civil servants in number 10 in the cabinet office and a test that the Sue Gray report shows they failed spectacularly. And a final question I just wanted to put to you was on on the same theme, really, is should a civil servant ever have been the one doing this investigation? Um, obviously, no. <laughs> to begin with, it was Simon Case, um, who, interestingly, given that he must have known uh, what parties he had himself been to, took on the role to start with, but then that was handed on to Sue Gray. Was that ever appropriate? Alex, you're saying no. No, I don't think so. And I think the model of the Cabinet Secretary being the sort of investigator for the Prime Minister has been shown to be um, inappropriate uh, throughout all of this. Um, I, I think that's arguably the case if it if, it, if it's the Cabinet Secretary or someone on their behalf, a Sue Gray figure, um, doing it, uh, looking into the conduct of other ministers. Um, I think we need to find an, an, a, another way to do to do even that, but particularly so if you're investigating the Prime Minister. I just don't think the thing uh, stacks up. We have an independent advisor on ministerial interests. They're pretty weak, um, but strengthening that using that office um, currently held by Lord Guide um, to do these sorts of things in a more independent way is absolutely the right way to go, I think. Do you agree, Jill? Yes, um, I think a more experienced Cabinet Secretary would have told the Prime Minister when he said that the Civil Service is going to investigate that that was an absolutely shockingly bad 
idea and would lead to a whole range of problems. The sort of things we saw over the weekend about whether Sue Gray was being pressured or not, that that would carry uh, minimal credibility. I mean, Sue Gray does seem to have sort of navigated its more or less through it, very experienced, useful. They had a Sue Gray they prepared earlier who was convenient in Northern Ireland while the partying was going on and therefore, you know, they could pretty well guarantee not implicated. But it was always a terrible idea uh, and they really need to put in place a much better system, I think, both if there's any risk that the Prime Minister could be implicated or indeed the civil service is investigating its own behaviour. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Alex Thomas, Joe Rutter, and especially to Paul Brand. And thank you to you all for joining us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And please do give us a review. And don't forget to visit our website where we have a great deal more content on all this. We've also got a new report out on the cost of living crisis and what more the government could do to help. You'll find all the details of a great range of events that we'll be hosting, including soon an in-conversation discussion with the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting. So this part of the Partygate saga is over, but I don't think the story is quite over yet. For now, though, and like Sue Gray, I imagine, we all need a bit of a break from it. Have a good weekend, everyone. <laughs>